Good day. This is Free City Radio. Thanks for tuning in. This is the 36th edition of the podcast. Uh, We uh, share a new episode every Tuesday, um, and it's a pleasure to be with you uh, again. It is Tuesday, the 6th of April, and um, we are coming to you from Montreal. I'm Stefan Christoph, your host. Uh, thanks again for listening to Free City Radio Podcast. Uh, please tell a friend to subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Today on the broadcast, on the podcast, um, I wanted to feature a conversation with Tim McCaskill. Uh, Tim is a longtime LGBTQ activist in the Toronto area and uh, recently has helped put together a coalition of many organizations within the queer and LGBTQ community in Toronto to call for a safe reopening of the bathhouses in the context of the pandemic. Um, I was in touch with Tim and I thought that this was a really um, important opportunity to speak with uh, Tim McCaskill about his work. Uh, He's been involved in uh, social movements in Toronto for so many years. Uh, but also to hear the reflections of somebody integral to uh, social activism, LGBTQ social activism in Toronto, uh, to get a perspective on the pandemic. Um, When the uh, pandemic hit last spring, I was really thinking a lot about uh, the ways that um, the gay community dealt with a health crisis in the 1980s around AIDS. And... Um, The struggle, of course, to get that crisis to be seen, uh, to have support for people struggling within the context of the AIDS pandemic. And I think that there is a really important moment for us to listen and to learn to LGBTQ activists about notions of solidarity, uh, about uh, the ways that this is a moment to learn from that history. Um, So this is one of the topics we talk about in this conversation. Uh, We get into a lot of different uh, and important, I think, directions. So I'll just uh, leave you to hear this uh, exchange with um, activist uh, in Toronto, Tim McCaskill, here on Free City Radio. Good day. Um, I'm joined by Tim McCaskill. Uh, who is a longtime community organizer in Toronto. Um, I first met Tim in the context of um, solidarity work with Palestine and um, a campaign or various efforts that were taking place um, to uh, basically challenge uh, pinkwashing on the part of the uh, Israeli government and um, the mobilization that happened in response uh, from LGBTQ groups to challenge um, colonialist narratives um, in that regard. Uh, that's not what we're talking about today, but I just just wanted to mention that's where we, we connected. Um, and um, I remember marching with you and many others at, at Pride here in Montreal around that. Um, but uh, you had shared with me and thank you for, um, for doing that. Um, a recent um, information about a recent campaign that has been happening in Toronto in the context of the pandemic, which um, addresses the issue of uh, calling for a safe reopening of the baths in Toronto, bathhouses. And um, going through the text and reading also just from, you know, you, you read one thing and you click on something else and sort of reading about that um, really 
uh, opens up a lot of uh, possibilities for discussion around how the pandemic has impacted different communities. So I guess, but, you know, and I'd love to get into that, but just, just to start, um, maybe you could just introduce yourself um, and, and, and share with us a, a little bit about that campaign for people who haven't heard about it. Sure. So um, Tim McCaskill is, is the name. Um, I'm kind of one of these old activist dinosaurs uh, around town. And about a month ago, or maybe a little bit longer, I was contacted by some bathhouse workers um, who were concerned about baths reopening in the middle of a, a, um, a pandemic and how that would affect their working conditions and their safety in the working conditions. Now, to start off, I would say that uh, I think the uh, operators in Toronto have been generally uh, fairly responsible. Nothing has opened since the beginning of the, uh, of the pandemic. Um, one play, one uh, bathhouse opened its bar. This has a sort of a standalone bar when bars were allowed to be uh, open and functioning and then, you know, did the tables six feet apart and all followed all the guidelines. But the bath part of the uh, institution wasn't open because, you know, it couldn't, it couldn't meet those guidelines. Yeah. Then uh, we began to hear that uh, baths had opened in Montreal over the, over the summer. And, you know, that was a bit of concern and there was concern expressed in the Montreal community as well. And then, you know, things got worse and they closed down. In the fall, um, bathhouses in London, Ontario and Hamilton also reopened. And uh, this is sort of at the beginning of the second wave, right? And so yeah. that was the thing that really alarmed, I think, the, the, the guys that work in, in the baths here is that if it's happening in these cities uh, not very far from us, like, when's that going to happen here? Is that going to happen here? The, the problem with the baths are, as we know, they're pretty um, unique institutions. Yeah. But the government categories trying to deal with the pandemic are much broader and they're not really tailored to deal with baths. So baths fall somewhere under hotels, uh, gyms, uh, restaurants, bars, you know, those are the categories that are operative in terms sure. of who can open and what has to happen or all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So basically the baths in, uh, in London and uh, Hamilton opened under those auspices. And I kind of think that the, public health people didn't really have a clue what goes on in baths because, you know, baths are not bars. Uh, they're not restaurants or hotels. I and mean, baths are places for people to go to fucking suck with random people, right? And it's like close contact and breathing the same air and the same fluids and all of those kinds of things. So like we were really unclear about how to proceed because on the one hand, Baths are important institutions, and yes, people would like to see them open mm -hmm. uh, again. Uh, like all small businesses, they're under a whole lot of economic pressure. A lot of baths in Toronto have closed over the years because there's lots more competition with the apps, Grinder and Scruff, and all those kinds of places where people can hook up without going to baths. Um, so, on the one hand, we'd like to see these places open again because they you know, meet a very important community need. But on the other hand, you want to make sure that when people go in there, they're safe. Uh, and the, the question of safety in a pandemic is really different. I mean, the, the models that are being used are HIV models. And in terms of HIV, I mean, you can actually uh, calculate the level of risk that you're willing to, uh, to deal with. 
And, you know, if you choose wrong, well, the consequences are basically consequences that happen to you. But in terms of COVID, if you go in and, you know, somebody gets too close to you in a, in a, in a hallway and breathes um, and you get infected, then you take that home to your family, to, uh, you know, your roommates, to other people that you may be hanging out with, to your workmates, all these kinds of people. So like, it's not like HIV. If the consequences affect a lot more different kinds of people. And so what we said was that we really wanted to get public health to come in and take a look and see how bads operate, right? See what happens there and then come up with some sort of determination about what safe bathhouse opening would look like, like what it would look like and when it would be possible, right? Because we're not like those other categories. Yeah. And so, uh, that's where we've been. That's where we've been pushing, trying to get public health engaged and meeting a certain amount of resistance. Well, yeah, and I mean that brings up a really important point. I think about the pandemic response in the context of Ontario. Um, you know, the premier Ford has been celebrated for not being, you know, basically a denialist. I mean, just uh, just even just acknowledging the situation, uh, which is. Um, I, I don't understand how that's something to celebrate, but um, but it does Trump bring up the bar pretty low, you know. Trump set the bar pretty low. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, good point, right on. Um, but it it does bring up the the ways that the pandemic is mediated and also how it impacts different communities. If we're talking about the LGBTQ community. Um, in Ontario or Toronto, you know, we're, you're, you're in Toronto, but obviously beyond Toronto, um, there's not a lot of love between, uh, I mean, uh, big, many organizations and, and people within the LGBTQ communities uh, um, and the, the Ford government. Um, so I'm just wondering, um, you talked about resistance from public health officials to actually acknowledge or address. I know that officials in the government aren't the same thing, but I'm just wondering if you could share with us some, some sort of the, the discrepancies and challenges that the community from your perspective has been yeah. facing in regards to dealing with the government. I think you need to look first maybe at the demographics of the, uh, the gay men's community, especially the gay men's community that uh, regularly goes to baths. Um, these are people, I mean, our community, Toronto is like 50% racialized people right now. So our community is 50% racialized. So young racialized people tend to be in precarious working conditions. They're the people that are still having to go to work in places that are open or in factories or places like that, right? So they're already at a group that is at, uh, at higher risk. Then there's a group of older gay men that also go to baths, right? Once again, because of age uh, at, uh, at, at very high risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't think anybody's actually crunched the figures, but uh, mm -hmm. I think that we're looking at a community that is probably a more high risk than kind of generally other, other kinds of communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, we don't have a history of very warm relations with state apparatuses, right? I mean, they tend to- Put it lightly. 
very much or ignore us or just don't understand us or get us, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we've been talking to public health, I mean, there's two sides to the problem. Public health is like obviously overwhelmed by all of this stuff. And when you say, we need you to sit down and actually look what happens in baths and tell us you know, what works. It's like, oh God, like we don't have time, right? We're trying to do a million other things, right? So, because they don't recognize us as a kind of a priority community, right? Despite the uh, the demographics that I just spoke about. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the, the bath operators themselves who like uh, under the pressure of all uh, small businesses are saying like, do we want public health to come in here and actually snoop around and say, well, shit, you're not a ba- you're not a bar, you're not a restaurant, right? I mean, the stuff that goes on here is really different. Is that going to provide more restrictions on our reopening, right? Is that going to affect us economically, right? So you've got these different interests at play. Then there's yeah. like the workers who have got like, am I going to be asked to go into places where, uh, you know, the police is full of COVID, right? And, you know, maybe I'm given PPE, but I'm walking in these halls, I'm cleaning rooms, I'm dealing with all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and then there's the people who use the baths too, who like, like many people, like I would really like to be able to go back to the baths at this point. Uh, and if they were to open, I mean, that's a signal to people that, okay, it must be good now they've been able to open. But if it's a false signal, if it's a, if it's a signal based on categories that don't really correspond to the actual social relations that are taking place there and put people at risk, then uh, that's not a good message to send to our community. Well, as always, uh, your work is uh, centering the experiences uh, and focusing on the needs of, um, you know, uh, people within the LGBTQ community and, you know, and thinking about the health and welfare of people who use bass and and also the larger systemic questions this brings up. and that speaks to also a history, right? Like a history of organizing around bathhouses. Do you mind just, um, if, if possible, just quickly giving a bit of context of, of the importance of understanding those institutions within a, a, a history of struggle? Yeah. Um, well, well, baths have existed since the 60s, right? And they started off being kind of places where largely immigrant communities went because people didn't have bathrooms in their houses, but then over the years began to specialize. Uh, and so by the seventies, this phenomenon of the gay bath began to emerge. Mm-hmm. And remember that after quote unquote decriminalization, the police were not happy about decriminalization and uh, were always kind of looking for ways that they could recriminalize and police uh, gay men's communities. And so, the, yeah. bath, uh, the bath rate on trucks in Montreal, was that 77, I think it was. It was like a very big one. Um, and then the, the uh, kind of famous bath rates in Toronto in 81, where they raided all of the, the baths all at once. To put that in context, I mean, there were us, um, us young activist radicals at the time. Mm-hmm. And we tended to be kind of arrogant and snooty. And there was this feeling like, you know, places like, baths and bars the people weren't they weren't properly liberated right they were just uh you know all they were into was having sex and drinking and they went into the revolution and building gay liberation and community and changing the world and all those kinds of things when those raids happened and thousands of people yeah went out into the streets yeah i think that was a real wake-up call for kind of us, us young activists that began to realize that these social spaces where people get together and get to know each other and make 
make connections and develop yeah. networks. Yes. That's the foundation of our community, right? Yes. And we began to become much more sensitive to, to that, not, you know, and much more appreciative of the kinds of politics that we're developing there really organically uh, between people. Mm-hmm. And I think that really changed the trajectory of the, uh, of, of the gay movement. Remember the bath rates in Toronto, 81, this is the same year that AIDS is uh, identified. And all over North America, subsequent to that, baths are closed down, right? Because these are seen as places of infection. But we've been through this kind of struggle. We recognize the importance of these institutions to our community and say, no, we should not close these places down. We should turn them into sites of education and um, safer sex information and connections with the community, because that's the way we're going to be able to to fight and defeat this epidemic. Right? And, and we did that. So the baths in Toronto uh, remained open, even though most of the rest of the Anglo world anyway, they, uh, they closed down. And I think that we're better off because of that, that we were able to uh, reach people who would never be involved in activist circles or even kind of the community circles, but who would come down yeah. to baths and that's how they made their connections with community. That's how they learned about safer sex and how to protect themselves. In terms of community resilience, I mean, and throughout the first part of the pandemic, I was thinking about the histories of struggle and also practices of safety and the experience of LGBTQ communities a lot. Um, And just in regards to, (laughs) I don't know how to put it, but like the, it just seems like the pandemic was such a shock, you know, and, and of course it is a shock. I'm not, not saying it isn't, but, um, you know, we're talking also about, you know, a history of struggle, um, uh, of queer struggle in, in the context of a community that has an experience with uh, dealing with uh, health crises uh, in, in, different, in different ways. Uh, I'm not saying it's the same situation, obviously not, but I did, it, it, that did come into my mind and heart a lot, you know, in, in the first months of the pandemic. So if, if you don't mind, uh, if you have any reflections on, on, on that sort of um, the importance of maybe uh, thinking about um, that history and uh, also the the insights that LGBTQ community organizers and activists and organizations would have in terms of responding to what what everybody uh, in society and the world is facing right now. Yeah, it's a big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah. I guess some of the lessons that come from from AIDS uh, are the importance of building community and community connections. You can't do this kind of thing alone. That I mean, the, the, neoliberalism has like pumped this idea into society at large that there is no society; there are only individuals. As Margaret Thatcher famously said, right? So there's this. Yeah hyper-individualism yeah. that, um, that really tries to undermine social connections. And I think what the fight against AIDS showed that we're much stronger uh, when we build our resistance on those social connections. The fight against the bath rates showed exactly the same thing. You know, the, the police were counting on a whole lot of individuals pleading guilty to keep their names out of the paper. That's what they were counting on. And uh, in fact, what they were faced with was a community that said like, no more shit, we're not putting up with this kind of stuff anymore. And, you know, they didn't get their convictions, right? 80, almost 87% of the the cases were 
were, were acquittals, right? Or thrown out of court. Um, so when we come together as a community to deal with the challenges that we're being faced, whether it's over-policing, whether it's uh, an epidemic of some sort, we're much stronger. And I think that that's what that history, um, that history should indicate to us. And it's a history that's well worth remembering now and which may mean that we're going against the grain now that in a society that really emphasizes this notion of, of, in, of individualism and individual decision-making and you know, self-actualizing individuals and all of those different permutations, right? That, uh, that, I mean, there's some truth to that, but that isn't really the way the world works. And that uh, if we want as a, a group that has traditionally been marginalized, if we want to begin to grapple with that, then we have to begin to build community to do so. In a sense that history is also alive today, right? Like all those histories of struggle you're talking mm -hmm. about. And mm -hmm. often people com compartmentalize, you know, moments as if they're yeah. sort of existing in the past, but you know, yourself and many others carry that with you. Yeah. So thanks for sharing all those insights. Um, and uh, it was great to get the chance to talk with you today. My pleasure as always. Right on, thanks. That was uh, an exchange with uh, longtime activist Tim McCaskill here on Free City Radio. Thank you for being with us. This is the 36th edition of the podcast. It is Tuesday, the 6th of April, 2021. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Um, it's been great to uh, share a weekly podcast with you. Thanks for listening in. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, I'd really encourage you to um, subscribe to our podcast. Tell a friend. You can find us on Apple Podcasts on just by searching Free City Radio. Of course, we also broadcast weekly on CKUT Community Radio here in Montreal at 90.3 FM. You can catch us every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Find all of our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Um, and to uh, end the show today, I wanted to go to a piece of music that I love. Um, and um, I really miss uh, sharing this type of music uh, when I was working at Casa del Popolo before uh, the pandemic hit and the bars closed. But this is Small Town Boy uh, here on Free City Radio. Uh, just a, a classic track that uh, brings tears to my eyes, but somehow also brings hope. I just love it. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, I'll see you next Tuesday. Mm -hmm.